If you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn to Titus chapter 3. If you need a Bible, there's a big stack of them there on the back shelf. You can grab one so you can follow along with us. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8 is our text this evening. Here we have the last of the five faithful sayings given by Paul to Titus and Timothy, his sons in the faith. As we've gone through these trustworthy principles, we've found some of them have been pithy, some have been poetic, some have been more proverb-like in structure, but tonight's is a little bit different. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue as a few of the others did. Rather, it's one of those long run-on sentences that Paul liked to use. If you're ever reading Paul, if you're like me and you read Paul's letters, sometimes you think, what, what, I, you lost me like, <laughs> you lost me a bunch of commas ago, Paul. Well, that's one of those tonight. The faithful saying is found in verses 4 through 7, and then the label follows it in first, verse 8. And there in verses 4 through 7, Paul will talk at length and in detail about what Christ has done for us and who we are as a result. Earlier this year, Marvel's Black Panther hit the theaters. One of the recurring phrases in the movie was, show them who you are. It popped up. A uh, few times. In fact, a couple of the trailers were built around that very phrase. The saying is most prominent during an early battle between T'Challa, who is the Black Panther, and he's the king of Wakanda, and then a man named Mbaku, a neighboring chief who challenges the throne. When T'Challa falters in the fight and seems like he's about to be defeated, his mother shouts out loudly from the sidelines, show him who you are. And the rightful king then overcomes his challenger, showing him mercy but maintaining his position of power. Now, Disney's Moana had a similar theme running through the songs and the story. From the outset, Moana is trying to reconcile who she is with her duty as leader of her people. At one point, her grandmother sings to her, Moana, you've come so far. Moana, listen, do you know who you are? Later in a song where Moana discovers her heritage and calling is to be a voyager across the seas, the lyrics say these lines, We sail the length of the seas, we set a course to find a brand new island, everywhere we roam, we know who we are. And then in the climax of the film, if you haven't seen it, sorry, it's been out for a million years. <laughs> in the climax of the film, Moana confronts a dangerous lava monster uh, but rather than destroy her, Moana makes a realization about the true identity of this creature, and she sings these lyrics to the lava monster. This does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And the uh, situation is resolved. In each case, the idea of knowing who you really are is what determined the course ahead and what enabled the characters to rise above their failures and their shortcomings, rise above their foes, and lay hold of their true destinies. As Christians, we know who we are in Christ. Uh, it's made uh, clear to us in vivid detail through the pages of Scripture. And yet we're reminded again and again and again and again in the New Testament about this very thing. As the men who wrote the New Testament uh, drive the message home over and over, this is who you are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? What has the work of Jesus accomplished for us? Well, certainly Titus, uh, a younger man, but a pastor, a seasoned missionary just like Timothy, Certainly, he was no stranger to the truths that Paul was writing to him. 
Uh, it wasn't that he had no idea what to do or how to establish ministry or how to lead a church. And yet, Paul wrote him this pastoral epistle, and Paul felt it was necessary for Titus and therefore for us to hear these truths again repeated. The Apostle Peter felt the same way in many cases. He explained it this way in his second letter. This is 2 Peter 1, verse 12. He says, I always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth that you have been taught. And so the reminders are not only helpful, they're important, they're necessary, and they're something that God wants for us. And so Paul reminds us once more about who we really are because of Jesus Christ. And then he gives a prescription of how we should then live in that reality. And so we begin in verse 4. We see, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. The verse opens up with the word but. Obviously, we're not going from Titus 1.1 all the way through, and so I'll give just a tiny bit of context. The word but there follows a long list of who we, all of us, were apart from Christ's intervention. You can scan up to the previous verse. We were hate-filled, envious fools who acted more like animals than men should act. We were slaves to sin and in hostility toward each other. He says, hey, this is who you were apart from Christ. Uh, now, some of those who do not believe in Jesus as Savior, uh, yet they live what we might call a moral life or a relatively good life, they might protest at this point and think, hey, well, that's not who I am. Paul describes this, you know, wicked person in Titus 3.3, 3, well, that's not who I am. But the answer to that is, and if you're thinking that tonight, if you're not a believer, you know, your relative goodness is just like throwing a coat of paint over a moldy wall. Uh, the contamination may be hidden for a short period, but the problem still exists, whether it's outwardly visible or not. And in fact, in many ways, the problem is much worse because it is covered up and because it isn't being seen. And as believers here, it's good for us to take a look at what sin really is. Uh, especially those of us who have been saved from a very young age, who have grown up in the church, grown up in Christianity. You know, we need to take a good, long, hard look at passages like the one that precedes our text here, where Paul gives a good description. He's like, Here, here's what sin really is. You haven't maybe lived it out like other people have, and that's great. That's a good thing. But take a good, long look at what sin really is. It's advertised as pleasure, but in reality, it's a prison. We were enslaved to wickedness and headed for an eternity in hell, Paul says. Not a few people, not the worst people, but everybody, all of mankind. But then Jesus came. Paul describes him here as the embodiment of God's kindness and love. It's a warm-hearted compassion on behalf of mankind. God came as a rescuer, willing to save anyone and everyone who would call on his name. Paul goes on then saying that Jesus appeared, verse 5, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Hold there. Mankind did not discover salvation. It's not that we, through searching, uncovered some hidden treasure in some deep, dark jungle that could buy us out of sin and death. No, salvation appeared to us, Paul says, though we would not and could not find it on our own. Paul would say elsewhere, hey, there's none who search after God. 
No, salvation was revealed. Jesus Christ was revealed to us, and then salvation was offered as a free gift to anyone who is willing to accept it. And the apostle specifically says it has nothing to do with our works or our actions. Salvation, God's favor, God's grace, is never a payout that's owed to you. It's never a merit system. God is not handing out his grace, his favor, his salvation like uh, badges for the Boy Scouts. Oh, you figured out how to make fire on your own. You figured out how to do this. Okay, you've earned a badge then. That's not how God works. He's not giving them out for those who learn how to make spiritual fire on their own. And it's important for us to keep this basic but essential truth in mind because at the end of our text, we're going to be commanded to maintain works. And Paul talks a lot in Titus about works and about how Christians need to work. And we need to keep all of this in mind and in context because we're going to be commanded to maintain works. And we'll see the why and the how when we get there. But here at the start, Paul could not be more clear. Salvation is not by human works. It's not through a level of goodness. It's not through a sacrament. It's not through a ritual. It's not through anything but by grace alone, through faith alone, because of the work of Jesus Christ, not our work. And so it is according to God's mercy that he saved us. The Lord had pity and compassion on human beings who, quite frankly, aren't all that lovable, right? Elsewhere, the Bible explains that none of us are righteous. We have all turned aside We were corporately and personally at war with God, and yet he loved us with a tender, saving love. God gave his own son so that a person like me and a person like you who was at war with him could be saved. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 say this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. That's the description of Uh, God's act of salvation and the characteristic of his mercy. Salvation is the work of God. And here Paul dives down into that work, describing and detailing it for us. Verse 5 continues, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We're given two items here, regeneration and renewal. To be regenerated means to be refashioned, to start over. That old sin nature is crucified with Christ and we are born again. But then additionally, Paul says that we are renewed, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We're not just starting fresh. It's not just a clean slate when God saves us. Because what good is a clean slate if all we can put on it is imperfection and failure and shortcoming, right? If we just start over without having been transformed, without having been empowered by God, without having Him make us into something new, well, then we'll just end up in the same place that we were before, But being renewed by the Spirit indicates that we are not just made over, right? Not just a new start, but we're made better than before, new and improved. You see that sometimes in the store, new and improved. It's new packaging, but it's new content on the inside. And so now we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us and continually transforming us by His power. That's what it means to be born again, regenerated and renewed of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom, verse 6, he, God, poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God has poured out his Holy Spirit on his people without restraint. The image is one of, of flowing out in a torrent of fullness 
of experience. Uh, Paul is using great words here, rich words that have uh, nice vivid detail. The image that came to my mind is just being poured out without restraint. It's, it's like those scenes in movies where there's somebody drilling oil, right? And when they finally hit the supply and all of a sudden, does just a little trickle come out? No, it's always a geyser just bursts through that rig and out through the ground. It shoots out a million feet in the air and showers everything around it with that black gold, right? And what always happens? Well, the oil men are all dancing around in celebration. I hit YouTube. Yeah, James Dean didn't dance around, but he was happy in his movie when he hit it. But that's the kind of abundance that we're talking about and that Paul wants us to think about. That sort of just geyser of, of, of unrestricted, overflowing abundance. That's how God poured out his Holy Spirit on us, without restraint. But notice the arrangement. We don't have to go digging for the Spirit. We're not the oil men who have to go, you know, divining and find, you know, maybe the oil's here and then we start digging and we set up all these apparatuses and then we work hard and harder and harder and harder. And then finally, if we've worked hard enough and smart enough and good enough and worthy enough, then the Holy Spirit will break through. That's not what the Bible says at all. We don't have to go digging for the Spirit. It was the Lord who poured him out on us. I mean, you see this in the book of Acts a couple of times, right? They're having a regular meeting, and the Holy Spirit says, I'm coming now, and it just falls on people. And he's, he's there, and he's poured out from heaven. And uh, it is the Lord who poured him out on us. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to be coaxed or cajoled to come around. We don't have to convince him to spend time with us. We don't have to convince him to show up. This is a big mistake that sometimes Christians slip into that, well, the Holy Spirit, you know, he's, he's, kind of, he's kind of a strange guy. He's kind of standoffish. He's kind of like, you know, like, a, like some sort of wild animal that you have to coax in and bring in. And, and finally, you know, if you've done enough, then the Holy Spirit will do something in your life and will manifest himself in some way. But that's not what the Bible demonstrates for us at all in any way. And Paul says here, the Holy Spirit is poured out on you Christians abundantly without restraint. He's not rationed in some tight-fisted way. He's not only given to some and not others. He's given in an over-ample generosity, Paul says, that, that, that heaven has sent him. And that he's excited about that. The Holy Spirit wants to have that sort of interaction and that sort of filling in your life. He doesn't have to be convinced. He doesn't have to be tricked into doing it. He doesn't have to be conjured like he's some sort of magical presence or whatever. And, and yet, so often, the church or Christians sort of slip into that kind of mentality. And it's a sad thing uh, based off of what the truth is in the Scripture. Now, verse 6 causes us to consider the fact that to the Apostle Paul, being a Christian meant being a Spirit-filled Christian. That, that was just the, the end of it. There weren't some believers who were interacting with and being renewed by the Holy Ghost and others who were not. To be a Christian meant to be Spirit-filled. And when we read the New Testament, we find that to quench the Spirit or to shut off of His you know, interaction in our life, that's not given as an option. The, the New Testament doesn't say, hey, if you uh, want the Holy Spirit, that would be a great thing, and here's some of the things that he'll do for you. But if you don't want that option, we'll give you the base model, right? If you don't want power windows and power locks, you can just have this one down here. That's not what the Holy Spirit, or it's not what the New Testament says at all. It says, hey, if you quench the Holy Spirit, that's a grave error. That's a real problem. 
it's sin to do so. The Christian life isn't simply accepting some information about God intellectually, right? As if Christianity is just a mathematical formula, and as long as I know the answer to the formula, that's all God really wants for me. No, the Christian life is to be born again, and here Paul is describing it. It means to be regenerated and to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, uh, to have a living relationship with the Trinity. We see the whole Trinity at work in this passage, right? We see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Spirit. They're all working. They all want to be a part of your life. They all are operating in your life in one way or another. And, and if, if folks who tend more towards the charismatic side can make some errors about how they approach the Spirit, folks who tend to the more conservative side make a mistake of saying, we're good with two friends instead of three. Two friends is kind of as many as we need right now. We have the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You know, if, if he visits from time to time, not my house, but if he visits next door, that'd be fine too. And that's equally uh, a sad thing as the other side of things where it's like, hey, the, the Holy Spirit's like the force. Or the Holy Spirit's like some weird mystical magician that we have to, you know, conjure up in order to involve himself in our lives. And so... Being a Christian means to be born again, and to be born again means to be regenerated and renewed by the Spirit, and to have a living, active relationship with the whole Trinity. Being in a relationship with God is not just knowing that spiritual math equation. I believe mentally, and that's all that God wants. Well, that's not the end of things. As James wrote in his letter, hey, even the demons believe. Knowing the, the, knowing the equation that, well, Jesus lived, and then he died, and he rose from the dead, okay, it's important to know that Jesus is God and that is the basis of our faith. That is the truth of the gospel, absolutely. But our faith is then to be activated and produce what the Bible calls spiritual fruit. And that's why James will go on to say, hey, but faith without works is dead and you've got a real problem. You've got a real problem if your faith is only intellectual. Uh, Jesus said quite plainly that, hey, this is the plan that you go and bear fruit. That we as disciples are not disciples academically only or intellectually only, but that we then take what we know to be true, the revealed truth of Jesus Christ, the revealed truth of the Bible, and then bear fruit, apply it to our lives, walk in it, grow in it, that it actually makes a difference in how we live and what we do. We bear fruit by being renewed by the Holy Spirit. And as Paul wrote in Galatians, Galatians 5.25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. It's pretty simple. Now, verse 7 of our text continues, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified means the case is closed. We've been set free because God has declared us to be righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we note that this was not done because of any works or worthiness on our part. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of grace, justified by grace. Not by worthiness, not by loveliness, uh, not time off for good behavior or anything like that. You're justified because of the grace of God, because of the mercy of God. Grace acted in a way that we do not deserve so that we might become heirs with Christ. Sometimes when a young person receives an inheritance, it's held in trust until they reach a certain age, right? It's like, well, there's a million dollars waiting for you, kid, but you have to turn 18 or 21 before you can get it or whatever, you know, the will stipulates. 
But the New Testament points out that this isn't how our, our heavenly inheritance is. Our inheritance isn't just for the other side of death. It isn't just for the eternal state. Uh, yes, there are parts that are being saved until after we graduate to heaven, full glorification, our glorified bodies, our dwelling places with the Lord, all of that. But other aspects can be cashed in right now. One scholar put it this way, salvation may be future, but it extends into the present. I like that. Salvation is future, but it extends into our present. What portions of our inheritance are extended to us right now that we can draw upon? Well, we know the list. Peace, joy, empowerment, the banishing of fear, the removal of guilt, the ongoing renewal and filling by the Holy Spirit. It just names a few. We are heirs of Christ, and we can draw upon that inheritance right now. And it's a good thing because... I, I happened to hear uh, Pastor Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he wasn't teaching on this passage, but he said this in a message today, what good is a fortune if you're not allowed to spend it? If somebody says, you've been given a fortune, you've been given $10 million, I have? Yes. Can I spend it? No. Well, then it's worth nothing to you, right? Well, when can I spend it? At some point. After you die, you can have some. Well, that fortune's worth nothing. And people can tell you all you want. Oh, yeah, you have $10 million. You have $10 million. You have $10 million. Well, I don't have it if I can't spend it, if I can't use it, if, I, if it can't actually make a difference in our life. And our inheritance as Christians, yes, of course, has uh, a significant and all-important eternal component. And that's what Paul is always thinking about the future. He's always thinking about the end. He's thinking about eternal life. He's thinking about life on the other side. That's great. We think about that all the time too. But that's not all the inheritance is. We have inheritance now, the power of God, that everlasting life. Jesus said, hey, rivers of living water, right? Those things that we can draw on in this life now, peace that passes understanding, joy that's filled, all of these different spiritual fruits, all of this different empowering and leading and directing and understanding and all of these different things that the Bible talks about. Now, Titus 3, 8 says this, this is a faithful saying. Hold up there for a minute. Verses 4 through 7 are an important, trustworthy reality. If you are a Christian, this is who you are. Just read verses 4 through 7 again. That's who you are if you're a Christian. That's what's true about you. Not about some Christians, but not me. It's what's true about you. Spoken from the apostle himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Absolute bedrock truth that you can nail your life onto. This letter has been preserved and delivered right into your hands so that you can have confidence in these things and so that you might know how to walk in this reality. Paul concludes then by giving us some directives in how to walk in this truth. Verse 8 continues, And these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And so what does he tell us to do? He says, affirm and maintain. To affirm means to insist upon, to speak confidently about, to assert this truth. How do we do that? Well, we do that by preaching to ourselves and to others. We do it by holding fast the confession of our faith. We do it by just actually talking about spiritual things. We affirm these things to be true by actually talking about the Lord, talking about Christ and what he's done and who he's made us to be. Paul says to affirm 
constantly, meaning that it's to be a regular pattern in our lives, that we keep revisiting the idea of who we are because of Jesus Christ, that it's something we think about a lot, we talk about a lot, we consider a lot, we meditate upon, we affirm it to ourselves and to others. Sometimes we do that mental exercise that goes like this. If you knew you had one week to live, what would you do differently? We've all heard that before and we've all thought about it before. Here, let's take 10 seconds. If you had one week to live, what would you do? And all of a sudden we start listing things. Here's what I do, here's what I do, here's what I do, here's what I do. I I doubt anybody in here would say, I would do everything exactly the same as I'm doing right now, right? Because your reality has been changed. If that's true, that you only have one week to live and that it's a certainty, that you have confidence in that diagnosis, well then your reality has changed. And the idea is that knowing our destiny was certain and specific should impact our lives, and it would impact our lives. We would make changes and choices according to the reality that we were in, right? And the same is true here. This is a faithful saying, Paul says, a truth that you can hang the weight of your life upon. This is your reality, and that should impact your changes and your choices as you live out your life. Paul said to Titus back in chapter 1 that he wanted him to set things in order according to all this heavenly truth that had been revealed. He said, hey, affirm these things. Set them in order. And then Paul said, be careful to maintain good works. Now, we don't need to be skittish of this verse. We're grace people. Grace alone. Grace changes everything, right? You're not saved by works. You don't keep your salvation by works, okay? That's all clear. Paul's been very clear about it. But we don't need to be skittish when Paul says, hey, be careful to maintain good works. Paul has already very clearly said that human efforts don't get you saved. They don't keep you saved. They don't win you more favor from God than another person. But a real living faith will produce good works like a healthy tree produces fruit. It's natural. It's expected. Since we believe in who Christ is and we believe in what he has done, well, then we should act upon that reality, not only as a response to his grace, but because this is who we are. As if somebody had said, you only have one week to live, go. Well, the Bible comes along and says, here's your reality now. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what Christ has done for you. Here's your destiny because of him. Now go and live accordingly. It's our function in life to be bearing spiritual fruit. We are new creations sent out to minister in God's power. Now, careful here in verse 8 means to direct our attention and to be intent upon maintaining these good works. To maintain simply means to practice and engage in these things. So paraphrased, Paul is saying here, be intent on practicing good spiritual work as you are led by Jesus Christ and filled with the Spirit. Very simple. What are the practical shoe leather ministry works that Paul is talking about here? Well, this particular letter is full of them, uh, and I'd encourage you to just go through Titus in the next couple of days. He has examples, real-world examples for men, for women, for young, for old, for workers, for church members. That's just in Titus. That doesn't count the rest of the Bible, the rest of the epistles. But above the specific directives, there are also some general principles scattered throughout this letter for us in how we are to pursue what Paul calls good works. First of all, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14, that we as Christians have to learn how to maintain good works. He says, hey, you're going you're gonna to have to learn how to do this. Uh, 
It's a process. We're all called to growth and development. We may not have all the understanding that yet that we will have, but the idea is that we'll have more and more as we exercise our faith. Hey, learn to maintain good works as you walk with the Lord. Second, Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, we need to be ready for good work. A lot of Christian life is just being sensitive to how God is leading, sensitive to the Holy Spirit saying, hey, here's an opportunity. Here's, here's something I want you to do. Here's a chance for you to minister. You know, being ready for those good works. Third, Paul tells us to be zealous for good works. That's in chapter 2, verse 14. Ministry, living out the Christian life, doing these good works, it's not just a checklist that we're obligated to. The idea is that our hearts understand what God has done and who he has made us to be and that we get on board with that with zeal and excitement. We get on board with his plan for ministry and cultivate spiritual fruit in our lives because we want to bear fruit as well. Fourth, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 7, that good works should be a pattern in our lives. You know, Christianity isn't meant to just be a component of who you are. It's the focus. It is who you are. You are a Christian. You belong to Jesus. He blood-bought you on the cross. And now he has uh, not just a life for you to live, but a future for you. That's who we are. Fifth, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14, that we pursue good works that we might not be unfruitful. After all, God's a fruit farmer, right? He's a fruit farmer. And he calls us to not only be trees that bear fruit, but for us to be fruit farmers too, that we cultivate it in our lives, that we help cultivate it in others' lives. All of this lines up well with what Paul wrote earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And these things are profitable for us. They're profitable for all men. They're profitable not just for us, the individuals, and us, the church, but they're profitable for the wider world. As God's mercy and grace go out, as the gospel is spread, as people are drawn to Jesus Christ and ministered to by him and by his spirit, they're exhorted, they're convicted, Paul says in this letter. And along the way, we are continually renewed by the work of Christ and the power of the spirit. And so what we find is that this last faithful saying is a deep well of truth, it's one that we can be inspired by for sure, but more importantly, one we need to drink from again and again, just return to it, realizing who we are, and that this is my reality, and because of that, that should make a huge difference in my changes, my choices, and who I am. And this is who we are. Let's enjoy it. Let's show it.